Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, you're listening to Feast Meets West, the show where we tell the story behind your favorite Asian dishes. I'm Linda Liu, and on the line is my co-host in Hong Kong, Iris Van Kirkhove. Hello from Hong Kong. So we are broadcasting live from Heritage Radio Network at Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Every episode, Iris and I dig deep on a dish or aspect of Asian cuisine. We trace its history, how it traveled to the West, and we interview experts on the topic. Since we're based out of New York City, we talk a lot about how Asian food has traveled to North America, but it's a big world out there, and today we get a chance to focus on how Asian food, or specifically Chinese cuisine, traveled to other countries. Today we have Eddie Buckingham, co-owner of Chinese Tuxedo, and Paul Donnelly, executive chef of Chinese Tuxedo, in the studio with us to talk a bit, a bit about well-traveled Chinese food and the many cultural influences that led to the creation of Chinese Tuxedo. So for those who aren't familiar with Chinese Tuxedo, it's a contemporary Chinese restaurant located in a former opera house on historic Doyer Street in New York City's Chinatown. As Iris mentioned, we have Eddie and Paul here in the studio with us. Eddie was born in Singapore and raised in Australia, where he started his career in hospitality and met Paul. In 2009, Eddie moved to New York City for the role of GM of the Australian Bar and Restaurant. He then developed and opened his first venue, the Liberty NYC. But aside from owning and running Chinese Tuxedo, Eddie is Justin Timberlake's personal mixologist. Okay, more on that That's later. Side hustle. Side hustle. So, okay, all right. Brand ambassador for Salsa 901 Tequila, a consultant for Bluestone Lane Coffee Group, and is opening The Good Sort, a 12-seat vegan coffee and tea spot housed in the same buildings on Doyer Street. Busy man. <laughs> We also have here Paul Donnelly, who's the executive chef of Chinese Tuxedo. He's originally from Glasgow, Scotland, and began his culinary career apprenticing under Gordon Ramsay at Amaryllis in Glasgow. He moved to Australia in 20, oh, oh, 2006 to pursue his passion for Asian cuisine and further develop his craft. He's traveled um, around the world, and he's trained for several weeks in Bangkok. He's honed his skills at Nam Restaurant under Chef David Thompson and at Tetsuya's with Joet Yu. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I've actually never eaten a Chinese tuxedo. Linda, have you? 
Yeah, I have. It's interesting because I feel like it evades categorization. Um, you can't really pin Paul and Eddie's food down as one thing. And I don't think it's fair to call it Chinese fusion or even elevated Chinese as it's been described in the press. Um, I feel like you have to taste it in order to best understand it. So Eddie and Paul will talk about the different cultural influences that helped create Chinese tuxedo. But I think a good place to start is Australia, where Eddie was raised and had some of his strongest Chinese food memories and where he and Paul met. So we're fairly familiar with the story of Chinese food in the Americas. But Iris, could you tell us anything about Chinese food in Australia? Yeah, I was really curious about this since we've never really discussed that part of the world on the show before. I did a little research and gathered some opinion for, opinions from my Australian friends. So Chinese migration to Australia sort of exploded with the gold rush in the 1850s. So Chinese food pretty much came to Australia with indentured laborers. And these migrants opened small food stores that they called cookhouses to serve Chinese diggers hot meals. But these cookhouses were also sometimes frequented by Australian workers. Um, however, anti-Chinese sentiments started to flare up on the gold fields, and Chinese migration to Australia was stopped with the White Australia policy in 1901. But one of the exceptions to that policy was granted for chefs. Fast forward to the 1930s, Chinese businesses in Australia were allowed to bring, uh, apply to bring in workers from China. They weren't allowed to bring in relatives, so a lot of people would hide their familial connections and bring family this way. So you'd have Chinese restaurants bringing in their family who actually had no cooking experience but would learn on the job. By the 60s and 70s, Chinese restaurants had opened up in every city and smaller towns. So that's kind of the history of Chinese food in Australia in a nutshell. Yeah, very cool. And what do you think about now? How does Chinese food look like in Australia compared to the U.S., for example? Eddie can talk a little more about this, but as someone who knows nothing about food in Australia except for Vegemite and awesome coffee culture, I was surprised to learn that Asian food is actually really big there, which now makes sense when I think about the geographical proximity and immigration patterns. Um, but I talked to my Australian friends about their Chinese food memories growing up there, and they all agreed that there really is more of a range of Chinese food available to them in the sense that you can get both really low and really high-end Chinese food, but for the most part, it's pretty mid-range, almost like the way Japanese and Korean food is perceived in the U.S., perhaps. So unlike the U.S., it's not automatically assumed to be a cheap takeout food. We might think that perception has changed in the U.S. because we're spoiled by living in New York City, but that's still very much what the vast majority of Chinese food in the United States is. But like other Western countries, Chinese food did adapt to the local area and needed to fit Australians' palates in order to thrive. So there was definitely a lot of sweet and sour pork. In general, Chinese-Australian food is maybe a little saltier and sweeter compared to China. But nowadays, it's evolved past the sweet and sour pork, and dishes that were once not popular amongst non-Chinese Australians are appreciated now. Yeah, that's really interesting. And switching gears to Eddie and Paul, what's your take on Chinese food in Australia? Do you agree, disagree with Iris? Well, I think Iris's 
kind of study of the history was very thorough up until a point. It effectively ended up in around the 1970s. Uh, and in Oz, food culture really experienced a coming of age uh, in the latter part of the last century, 80s and 90s. And East Asian food more broadly, but particularly Chinese, was really at the forefront of that. And what it's translated to is uh, there's now... It's probably more broader in category, as Iris discussed, something that Paulie and I have found in our time in the States. Uh, Chinese, as a category, doesn't enjoy the prestige of some of the other food categories, whereas in Oz, it's manifested in many different ways. Mm. So as Aussie consumers, really in the 80s and 90s, were learning a lot more about their food, getting much more serious about their food, very similar to what was happening here in the States, mm-hmm. um, uh, because of our geographical proximity, yeah. the large Chinese population in Australia, exceptional produce quality, climate as well. You know, East Asian food works great in East Asia for a reason, and it works mm-hmm. great in Australia for those same reasons. Um, and we're really, really spoiled by our produce quality. So what's happened is uh, simultaneously people were more interested in the provenance of their food. So uh, uh, regionality was probably more important to Australians before it was here. So here there's this strange pan-Chinese kind of mashup which dominates mm-hmm. around the country. Mm-hmm. Whereas an Aussie back in the 90s might have been more aware of if it was, say, Sichuan cuisine or Cantonese, which is really the king of Australian Chinese. Cantonese is and remains. But, um, but other regions are better represented. But what really transpired, and the thing that I'm really excited about, my favourite school of cuisine, what I think Paul is probably the world leader in is this new category which is kind of it defies categorization and there's certainly not a term for it and it's funny you were talking at the, at the top about what is chinese tuxedo yeah it's it's not the term we necessarily want to use it's a bit cumbersome but this idea of australian chinese all right which is taking broader influence it draws from some other parts in the region is that fair poorly but um but it's it's really anchored in uh, a lot of personality on the plate great food quality, rooted in the traditions of Chinese. It is pan-Chinese, but it hasn't mm-hmm. translated in the way it has here in the States. So it's not just General So's chicken and, and sweet and sour pork and the like. It's it's innovative, it's progressive, uh, and it's really, really anchored in quality, which we haven't seen as much of here in, in the States. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, going touching on what Eddie was saying about, first of all, the king of... Uh, this new school, thanks very much. I, I don't, I don't think so. But um, you we'll know, disagree. humble brag. Yeah, but you know, like I think in terms of Chinese food, it's this, it's so diversified now, and it's like, you know, there's elements of different other uh, produce in Asia that you know Chinese historically might not have used. But you know, in terms of me, do I want to use it? Well, why not? You know, it's, it's fresh. It's it, it's great produce. You know, throw it in there. Let's see what happens. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, let's start again and try something different. And that's kind of a, like um, all those elements that I'm trying to use at Chinese Tuxedo to see if they work. And they're working really well. Um, so ex- I think expanding people's knowledge on what Chinese food is is kind of a, like what do you want it to be? You know, the Chinese culture and cuisine goes back centuries, mm-hmm. thousands and thousands of years. So, you know, we only know so much now and it's going to continue to grow you know as time goes on yeah let's um talk about um so the listeners know some of those like specific 
food items on your menu yeah. that kind of represent this. Mm. So um, I went over to the restaurant like a month ago, and it was just really amazing. I felt like there were it was pan Chinese that um, it didn't have a specific. Um, category to it and so one of the things that I felt like you guys really put your unique spin on was the crispy eggplant with citron and peanut caramel and then something that like to juxtapose that with that felt a bit more traditional Cantonese um, was the whole crispy skin squab with spice salt so do you want to talk about like yeah, of all the, <clears throat> the, so, they're, they're two great dishes because they kind of represent the opposite spectrums yeah. of the menu. Yeah, and also, uh, you know, different regions, obviously. So with the eggplant, you know, you go to like so many Chinese restaurants and, um, you know, this dish, the eggplant was inspired by, you know, uh, the region of Sichuan where they generally just stuff fry the long eggplants with a little Sichuan pepper, oyster sauce and garlic. Super simple, but really, really tasty until it's really tender. But, um, you know, people like to eat fried food. People like to eat things with texture, crunch. And I kept trying to think, what can we do that's something a bit unique? And obviously with this, the day and age going on with dietary requirements and stuff, so we come up with a batter of, you know, tapioca starch, rice flour, mm. water, and xanthan gum. So we emulsify that, we put it inside the siphon, and we charge it with CO2. And we, you know, fold our eggplants through that and deep fry, and you get this lovely, crunchy, translucent batter over the eggplant. Um, the sauce, you know, you know, going back to the Sichuan, the garlic, we just make like a glucose caramel, and then all those traditional elements go into that, and we toss it, and it's just really sticky, but like super flavoursome. Um, and then with the squab, I tried to, I didn't want to fuck around with that too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't want to fuck around with that too much, so I tried to do that, you know, as traditional as I could. Um, so, you know, we followed that, you know, the, the pigeons are cleaned every day, they're then brined overnight, day after that they're painted with red vinegar and maltose, and then dried for another 24 hours, and then we just roast it at a super high temperature until it's golden and nice and juicy. Yeah. So we try to serve it pink, but, you know, another battle we're having here is, you know, I, I don't want to overcook the pigeon. But some people are like, oh my god, this pigeon's like raw. Oh my god, I can't eat it. I'm gonna get salmonella. It's like, you're not. It's fucking perfect, man. Yeah. You know? Um, and then Americans. just serving it with Ugh. black vinegar and the salt, you know. And this, I actually took this inspiration from probably my second favorite Chinese restaurant back in Sydney, which is called Eton. And they just like, they just fly out the door. The pigeons are incredible. Um, and it actually surprised me here how many pigeons we sell. I reckon we sell between 50 to 60 pigeons a week, oh. which I think is pretty good. There's other restaurants in Sydney where I know that they've had to take it off their menu because they just can't sell it. Mm-hmm. So that's a sign here because that... It's, it's, it's not for everybody. It's a pretty confronting dish to look at. We serve sure. it We serve it, it head-on, yeah. talons yeah. on, it's which got, is the, as is the traditional style, and it's great to have the whole bird, and you can eat the head, and it's It's got everything highlight. on it except its guts, basically. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's, it's, a, it's really promising to see that, you know, that the people of New York are you know, adventurous enough to at least try it, where mm-hmm. it was a battle for me in Sydney to have people try things like that where they just wouldn't last on your menu you know oh that's really interesting maybe yeah. it's because you guys are in the heart of Chinatown Possibly. or you're like serving up not only just the food but an experience as well yeah um, the setting is beautiful do you want to talk and, about and I also think New York is yeah. one of the most adventurous food towns in the oh, world right. so people are when, when they're coming to us and we will speak to the setting a little bit um, 
we were really, really lucky to secure the space. We have historic space for Chinatown. It was the original Chinatown Opera House, um, the first Chinese language theatre east of San Francisco in the States. So with that early migration, that the early Chinese migration in, in the neighbourhood, um, they established the theatre built in 1853. Uh, it's had lots of different incarnations since. <clears throat> But uh, we, in my business partner Jeff and I, in doing the demolition, we tried to return it to its original scale. So it's a very unusual uh, space for the neighbourhood. But we're, we're on Doyers Street, which is very narrow. It's only 14 feet wide. Mm-hmm. Um, it's long been termed the bloody angle because yeah. it was considered the most dangerous street in the country for a while uh, when the Tong gangs ran the neighbourhood and even predating that um, you know much of the Scorsese film Gangs of New York is set in and around it which we love so it gets such a kick to go to work every day we down actually, there we actually had feel woman, like a badass we had a woman walk down the fire exit sort of Chinese taxi the guest and she was like she was French she was like where is the tunnels where is the tunnels and I was like man we fucking boarded that shit up ages ago also Paul is a talent with accents I know I know yeah <laughs> Um, he's, he, he flips between Australian and Scottish depending on the <laughs> really day, depending on the, on the depending on the sentence. Got so. It. <laughs> um, so, did the location come first, or did the concept of the food for Chinese tuxedo come first? Uh, it's a little bit chicken and the egg. Okay. We knew we wanted to do something in the heart of Chinatown. Uh, it's such a special and compelling neighbourhood. Um, so, as we mentioned, New York, one of the world's great food cities. Chinatown, smack bang in the heart of downtown Manhattan. But it's it's in some ways the the neighbourhood that the new food wave forgot. In some ways, it's kind of caught an aspect in some regards. Uh, there are some fabulous restaurants in the neighbourhood. Our favourite is Ping's around the corner on Mott Street, where they're on the reg. Um, but we felt that the the neighbourhood was a little bit out of step with contemporary food trends in New York, mm-hmm. which isn't always a, isn't a bad thing. Um, it's it serves as a bit of a time capsule, and that's great. But we felt with the right space, we could do something really uh, that challenges people's expectations of what the the neighbourhood is and what the food offering is. Uh, And so we were very lucky to secure the space that we have because it's such a jewel. Um, There's nothing like it in the neighbourhood. There's nothing like it anywhere, really. It's very unique. Um, Mm -hmm. It's very, very unique. And and when we got the space, we actually got more ambitious with the food program. Initially, we were thinking we might go like a harder Canton line. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, you know the example Paulie gave with the eggplant earlier. It, it was a room because it was so historic, but we were repurposing it. It was a good opportunity to repurpose some of these dishes and present stuff that was anchored in an old idea and an old prestige idea, but that we could frame a new way, just like we had the dining room. And so we're really lucky that you know every day we get to go to work and what is our favourite block and our favourite neighbourhood in the city, and that the room is so compelling and it taking something like the squab example that's a seriously dramatic dish the whole bird hits the table we have this beautiful earthen flatware that a mate of mine produces out of oz you know it looks gorgeous um and it's nice to to serve it up in that room on that block it's very atmospheric Mm -hmm. um it really evokes something in people and i think from the start the food had to be our number one hook we're about food first food's most important part and and the thing that we put our hat on but, man, having that gorgeous street, gorgeous room. You know, we say the experience starts about two blocks before you get to Tuxedo when you can just feel the, 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 the pattern and history of the street. Um, so, yeah, they certainly have influenced one another. And I, I feel like the food program is better by virtue of the location. Love that. It's great synergy. Um, so we're going to take a really quick break and we'll be right back with more Fee Sweets West. 
Hi, I'm Dave Arnold, the host of Cooking Issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General Tso's chicken and egg rolls. But here's the thing. Even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine? And how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese-American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500-pound fortune cookie machine. But what better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to 6. Tickets and more information can be found at mofad.org. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome back. You're listening to Feast Meets West. Here in the studio, we have Paul and Eddie from Chinese Tuxedo. And we were just talking about how you guys are in the heart of Chinatown. Um, and you're wildly popular. You've been reviewed by the New York Times, and Pete Wells even said, it's culinary clashes ending in harmony. <laughs> so what kind of um, clientele are you seeing? And um, is it you know, quite busy? Um, well, thanks to Pete Wells for that. It's, yeah, it was, thanks, mate. <laughs> we certainly got a lot buddy. more busy after that drop. Uh, clientele, it's, it's been pretty broad. Uh, uh, the great thing, you know, there's definitely a foodie set in New York, and I think that we piqued a lot of people's interests um, because the food, you know, what does contemporary Chinese mean? We, a lot of people have said we defy classification in some regards. So the foodie set have definitely been coming through by virtue of interest and intrigue. Um, I'm pleased to say a lot of them are returning, which is great. Um, We do draw a little bit from the neighbourhood. We're very different from the existing predominantly Chinese restaurants in the neighbourhood, but uh, it's been super rewarding to us. The first couple of months, it took such a long time to build out. We were a construction site for 15 months, so a lot of the neighbours kind of peeked over the construction shed and while we were developing, curious as to what was happening behind. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of them, the moment that the, the shed came down and the sign went up, were keen to get in and have a look, and we're getting a lot of repeat patronage there, which is great, which we, we, we really, really like to exist as an amenity to the neighbourhood as well. Um, but it, it's very broad. Destination diners, we get a lot of uptown diners coming in for what I almost feel for them feels like their Chinatown adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had conversations with guests, a woman who lived on the Upper East Side, she was in her 70s, she's lived in Manhattan her whole life and had never been to Doyers Street, which blows my mind. Yeah. But, uh, but that was exciting and that was by virtue of the NYT review. Um, so I think our bread and butter, what's really driving us, is the NYC food scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know better than us who populate that. It's predominantly young professionals really plugged in, reading the food media, etc. Um, and and it's great to have been embraced by that by that set. Yeah. But 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 it's broader and. Uh, uh, what about China, like China's food is such a staple for so many New Yorkers, um, but. 
but we but we exist outside of that standard expectation. So we get a lot of uptown diners coming down mm-hmm. who might do the Sunday night takeout ritual, you know, that kind of tradition. But we represent a pivot from that. For sure. It seems like you're opening up this part of New York City for even New Yorkers. Mm. What about the locals um, in Chinatown? Um, you know, the um, folks that have been there for, you know, you know, a few generations. How, what's the reception? Uh, Chinatown, it's a very interesting neighbourhood right yeah. now. It's a bit of a neighbourhood in flux. Um, the, the ethnic Chinese population in the neighbourhood is ageing. Uh, this isn't anecdotal. There have been studies on this and what's mm-hmm. happening in the neighbourhood because new Chinese population to to New York, to the northeast more broadly, is not going to Manhattan's Chinatown. Uh, you know, so new migration is hitting, say, Flushing in Queens, downtown Brooklyn, Chinatown Brooklyn, and some towns in New Jersey. So there's not a, a, a new wave coming in necessarily. But so what we typically find more is it's the second generation mm. of Chinese Americans. My, our, uh, Jeff Lam, my business partner, the general contractor of the project, is Chinese American. He has adult children, um, born and bred U.S., and that they definitely make they're indicative of a big part of our uh, uh, demographic. Um, we draw a lot of destination diners from Flushing, from Brooklyn. Um, from Brooklyn Chinatown, and we're also getting a lot of Chinese guests coming through. Yeah, especially these days. And I think it's important as well, you know, like touching on the demographic, it can really, you know, build your menu over the first 12 months. Mm-hmm. Like if you look at who your clientele is over the first 12 months, especially if they repeat, you know, what you learn to know what they like, what they dislike. You know, for me, big part of, I know that when I des- whenever I design a menu, I don't just look at, okay, this is going on the menu for the men. I always look at, you know, the broader horizon. What if there's a bunch of girls come in, you know? They're not all going to want to have the steak and the pigeon and the chasu and the rice. They might want to have those lighter things like, you know, the snow pea leaf salad or, you know, do you know what I mean? Just like, or oysters or steak tartare, things that are lighter. So, you know, catching on to your demographics is really important to pay attention mm-hmm. to because um, it, can, it can really make or break a business. And I think something we've done really well is keep our eye on who's coming through the doors. Keep, we, we track on repeat customers, um, stuff like that, you know. Yeah, it's it's not easy. It sounds like you do have a challenge yeah. balancing all the demographics in New York City. Um, and with the food itself, you know, we're talking about contemporary Chinese food. What's your definition of good contemporary Chinese food? How do you keep it great from, like, the your own inventions and to the traditional yeah. dishes? So... For many years now, like if I'm going to Chinese restaurants, the first thing that I run to is the tanks. I see what they've got. We don't have tanks at the moment. Hopefully, in the future, we can get some tanks in. But um, at the moment, we don't have tanks. But when I go, I'm like, okay, I want to see what fish they have that I can have steamed whole. Oh. How many different species of crabs can they have? How do I want it? They want it ginger scallion. They want it shaoxing and egg white. They want it typhoon shelter. They want it exo sauce. So for me, if I'm going to like a traditional Chinese restaurant, I first thing I look at is the seafood. At Chinese Tuxedo, you know, I try to source the best produce I can. And making it different may be involving using different produce from different countries. You know, I love Thai food so much, so I might try and sneak in some lime, kaffir lime, lemongrass, you know, a sauce that's made with fermented prawns, you know, which is, you know, not traditionally Chinese. But, um, you know, the ties have stole Chinese recipes for hundreds <laughs> of years. So why not do it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, I, I just 
I just love to you know have a main focus on seafood. Um, and I think with the, you know, for example, soft shell crabs are in at the moment. I've just put a whole bunch on the menu and I just can't get enough. <laughs> You're not so, guess, actually. Yeah. We're selling out every night. We need to get more soft shell crabs. Yeah. Um, to, to answer the question, what makes good Chinese food? More broadly, what makes any food good? I think it's it's good quality produce thoughtfully prepared. Passion, um, you know, as long if you've got a lot of passion, you know, confidence as well. Um, yeah. And, and the... It's, it's not. I don't want to use the word challenge. It's not a challenge necessarily, but a, st- a stigma that we fight in producing uh, uh, new Chinese or elevated Chinese, whatever term you want to use here in New York. There is a bit of a stigma around the category. Um, there is what people have grown up with, what their expectations are around Chinese, and it doesn't carry the prestige of some other food categories. Certainly, I find of. You know, here in New York, I think a lot of the European cuisines are king. You know, mm-hmm. you get great Italian, great French, and they can carry a prestige with them that people don't associate with with Chinese food. But you take the examples Paul has just cited. We're talking fresh, live seafood in the tank there in the restaurant. Um, you know, these soft shell crabs when they come in, we get them live every morning, and they are gorgeous. And it's exceptional food, thoughtfully prepared. That's good food. We're taking traditional ingredients, some traditional preparation methods, but then we're changing some stuff up. But it's it's anchored in these ideas in Chinese cuisine. But so it enthuses and excites a lot of our guests. They, they go, I'm so pleased to see dishes like this prepared in this way, served in this environment. But some guests, they might have sticker shock, you know, mm-hmm. because to their mind there's a ceiling of what Chinese food can be and what it's worth. Um, it was important to us with the name. We wanted to call it Chinese Tuxedo. A couple of people said, call it tuxedo or Doya's tuxedo. I was like, no, it's Chinese food in Chinatown. <laughs> yeah. It has to be Chinese tuxedo. Um, uh, because we want to shift people's perception of, of, of what the food can do and can be. Yeah, for sure. And we had actually um, Dale Taldi on the uh, yeah, podcast with us, with us last week. And we were talking about canned meats <laughs> and how there's a double standard with, you know, Asian preparation of these like meats that have been like preserved or in cans. And it's seen as cheap food, whereas the French, you have like, um, you know, a preserved roulette or something yeah, like that. The, the and French, they put foie gras in cans now, you know, and it's like... Exactly. It's like kind of the same it? deal. It's the same, same. Exactly. You know? And it's, it's so silly because it's like, why can you charge, you know, something less just because it's Chinese food? It's, it's ludicrous, you know, where an actual fact, you know, the Chinese techniques are probably a lot more labor intensive. The, the expertise required. You know? Yeah. There's so, more, you know, more ingredients go into it. It's even some I don't want to use the term basic but like some of our classic dishes so all the noodle dishes we do um, the noodles prepared in house uh, that's labour intensive there's specific technique to them and if you went to say an Italian restaurant in downtown Manhattan they may well have a category of pastas and then fresh pastas for their house made pastas and that will carry a big price premium mm-hmm. that people expect to pay because they understand the labour and the expertise required we make all our noodles in-house. We don't do anything bought in, nothing packaged. But 
but you call the dish noodle rather than a fettuccine or tagliatelle or whatever you and know the Italian dish to be, you do. Ten dollars. Expect it to be a ten dollar dish, but mm-hmm. you go no, we have an expert downstairs preparing this. Um, so I, I, I feel the tide is turning, yeah. and and there's a lot of other great operators in the city and more broadly around the states changing people's expectation around it. Mm-hmm. But we hope we can be a part of that. For sure. And, and, and we definitely. And I don't want to speak, you know, too broadly. We definitely have clients who get it, and there are people who come in. I think you had one of the noodle dishes when you were in, and they go like, "Oh, I get it. <laughs> this yeah. is different. This makes sense." But some people go, well, it's a Chinese noodle dish. In my head, that has a $12 ceiling. That's right. a $12 dish, max. Yeah. And don't understand and the expertise about, and labour. they forget about the dried scallops that are in it, and the dried shrimps, mm. and the pork. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, you know, kombu's not cheap. You know, butter's not cheap. You know, all these things. But, you know, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's the battle. But, you know, like we're, we're winning people over with things like that every yeah, day. That, that's the battle, but I think we're winning the battle. Yeah, for, for you're, now. you're fighting the good fight. Yeah. We're, fight, we're, fighting the we're good trying, fight. guys. We're trying. Yeah. And and what's your take on like this kind of future of uh, Asian Chinese, you know, pan cuisine that you're cooking? That's actually created from a range of influences and different layers of interpretation, and it's not just one thing. How do we start to describe food like this in the future? That's not the word, well, you know, look, fusion or do we just not even label I it? Don't think, I don't think, I, me personally, I don't mean the word fusion. It is what it is. You know, if you're, if you're putting Chinese food with British food or Thai food with French food, it's fused. You're fusing two different cuisines. For me, I've got no problems. And do you know what? I love, I love going to a restaurant and having, you know, a pasta dish that tastes Japanese, mm-hmm. you know, and that's extremely common these days, you know. Japanese love Italian food. They just season it in the Japanese style, you know. Um, so I, I feel I, like fusion has been stigmatized a little bit. It's a bit of a dirty word in food because it was such an exciting movement when it first came to pass. Yeah, like or the 1980s. When it was first popularized. Yeah. And I get it. I think it is exciting. Um, but then every, you know, airport kiosk started saying, oh, we do fusion sushi or whatever. And there yeah. was an awful there, lot there's of, a difference, though. The, the, there's an awful lot of bad food has been served under the fusion banner. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I have... Good fusion is is great food, so I have no problem with the term in and of itself. I think it's been bastardised and has lost its allure and charm. Which therein lies the danger. Um, the language around us, I don't know. You know, we're not linguists; we're just food guys. But uh, but it's a bit of a failure of language at the moment. I like the term New York Chinese, whatever that means. Yeah, I like that as well. Whatever that means. Australian, New York, Chinese. But but New New York is such a melting pot. There's so much influence. I mean, here's an example of an Aussie guy and a Scottish guy cooking Chinese food in Chinatown. (laughs) You know, we're melting pot 101. Um, I love what, like, just people showing a lot of personality on the plate, what the guys are doing at Mission, what people are doing in other parts of um, uh, Chinatown, whether it be from, you know, your quick takeout, your Xi'an famous foods. To even the, it's very different to us. It's not our style, but even like the hot Hakkasan end of things, it shows how broad the category can be. Um, I'd love to see a lift in standard of your your, your go to neighbourhood Chinese in the states. I feel like that tide might be turning. Mm-hmm. Um, but so long as people, are, like we said, good produce thoughtfully prepared is the most important thing. And for a lot of people, they don't feel Chinese can represent that. We want to show it can be different, and whatever you want to call it. Fusion, contemporary, elevated. I like New York Chinese. 
we just made that up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like this was yeah oh, a oh, brainstorm. And you, and you added in the word Australian, so it's Australian New York Chinese, <laughs> and people were like, "What the fuck is that?" <laughs> we might have to abbreviate it. We didn't make a pop. We didn't make a pop. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, whatever you want to call it, and people ask us all the time, "What do you call this? What region do you call it?" And we go, "Man, you can call it whatever you want. Just call it tasty. Yeah, call it just good. come by and, and try then it. Happy. Yeah, then we're happy. And eat the head of the squab, and then we're all happy. <laughs> yeah." Um, so what's next for you guys? You know, Chinese Tuxedo is doing awesome. Is there, you know... Uh, we're pretty busy at the minute. We've just had the good sort come online, which is our little cafe next door. Um, we have a lot of fun there. So that that's kind of the yin to the Tuxedo Yang. That's a, um, uh, it's a vegan cafe. Uh, we're pr- our primary offering is Australian espresso. Aussies take their coffee very seriously. And Chinese tea. So we do a range of Chinese teas. We, we want that to be different to Tuxedo. Tuxedo is an indulgence. This is like a, almost like a self-care space. The food's delicious, but it's um, all good for you, and people are really embracing that, which is exciting. We kind of got our hands full with Tuxedo, yeah. but we're really interested. We've got some travel coming up this year. We'll hit China, see what's going on out there, because um, we want to do more. Like we said, um, we, we want to shift people's expectation of mm-hmm. what standard Chinese is, what it looks like. So we, we've we've got to do some cool stuff in the category in the yep. future. There's more to come. That's amazing. We, we, we hope to be this new category called New York Chinese. <laughs> we, we want to be the, the category leaders. <laughs> new York Australian Chinese. New York Australian Chinese. We're narrow, <laughs> but that, that's our thing. Got it. That's yeah. perfect. You guys have a movement. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us on the show, Thanks for Paul having us. and Eddie. And so for listeners who actually want to learn more about Chinese Tuxedo or keep up with your future projects and current projects, where are some places they should follow you online? Um, Paul, you're better at social media than me. Really? <laughs> um, I guess, you know, you can follow me on Instagram at, at pdonnelly1. Um, Chinese Tuxedo, very simple, at Chinese Tuxedo. Um, likewise, at The Good Sort. Um, or just yeah, just fucking come in for some of the thing. Come to the restaurant. Come to the restaurant. The funny thing is, in this day and age, you know, you deal with these tech wizards who go, "We'll create a brilliant online experience for your guests and all that." And we're like, we don't really care about the online experience. We've got the coolest street in the city, food that we think is great, and we're happy to say a lot of other people do. Just come to the restaurant. Come hit us up. ChineseTuxedo.com. Come hit us up. Walk in. For sure. We'll make a reservation. Whatever works. <laughs> we we want we want to feed you. Make you happy. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you, Eddie and Paul, for telling us about what you do at Chinese Tuxedo. Dining there sounds like quite the experience, and I can't wait to check it out yeah, when I'm in town. town. Definitely. And um, whilst you're in Hong Kong, you've probably been to uh, one of my mentor and best friend's restaurant, Holy Fook. Oh, yeah, I love Holy Fook. Yeah, Jiao's one of my best mates, so next time you go in, you can tell him I said hi. <laughs> oh, will do. <laughs> And, and China Club's my favourite restaurant in the world. The food's oh. not good there anymore, but it's just, it, it strikes something in me. It takes me back to my childhood. I love it. Check that out too. <laughs> what a worldly experience. <laughs> and that wraps up our show today. So thank you for tuning in, everyone. Remember to subscribe to Feast Meets West on iTunes or Stitcher and leave us a rating and review. We'll be back next week with another awesome conversation from the world of Asian food. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.